Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this earth, not in this world. On Saturday, February 17th, Andy Johnson taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Andy looks at the doctrine of creation. Andy leads Catalyst Theology, is the senior pastor at King's Community Church in Southampton, and is a regular speaker and writer on theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. So, Genesis 1 to 3. We, um, I should have said in, in introduction, just talking about um, my background, what I actually do. So I lead a church currently, um, I have done for the last 15 months called King's Community Church, uh, which is right on um, the junction of the M27 Junction 7 which started off as this little tiny village church 30 years ago and now is this amazing community of 750 people on five acres of land with a 1,350-seater auditorium and a second auditorium of 450 and the most amazing social action programme. And I could boast all day about it, which is great because... I claim none of the credit because I've just inherited it. Um, It's not my work. We actually moved back to Southampton from where we'd studied years ago um, just because we'd been asked to be part of the team there and we'd been back there about 12 months and suddenly completely sort of curveball, oh, will you now lead the team? So that's what uh, my wife and I um, do and... um, yeah, we've got three grown-up kids, um, one of whom's a full-time worship leader. Another one is a, uh, our oldest son is a um, reception teacher, which is really unusual for a guy. He absolutely loves little kids. Uh, and our wife is a, is a um, our wife, our daughter is, um, is a publisher. So uh, that's a bit about, a bit more about us. So what we're dealing with with Genesis 1 to 11 is prehistory. And what I mean by prehistory is it's not to say that it's somehow lost in the midst of time. Prehistory is the story of the human race before the invention of writing. So historians would say that Um, writing was invented by the Sumerians in about 3000 BC and uh, whether you're an old earth or a young earth clearly the um, origins of the universe are more than 5000 years old so all of this story Genesis 1 to 11 the vast majority of this is Um, from a prehistoric period and uh, we'll come on to young earth old earth I'm not actually going to say that much about that 
um, for reasons which I will explain uh, later on. But let's just take a straw poll. Who's, who's going to go to the stake for, for Young Earth? Okay. And who's, gonna, uh, who's a theistic evolutionist? Okay, pretty hung jury. And who hasn't really got a clue? <laughs> that wins the day. We don't know. That's, yeah, that's probably where I am, actually. So, looking at Genesis um, chapter 1 and into chapter 2, I want us to see that there is pattern and order to the creation account. There are two Hebrew words that describe um, what is happening. Tohu and bohu, forming and filling. God forms and he fills. So when the creation, when the universe is created, the earth was formless, shapeless, chaotic, ugly. It was tohu. And it was also bohu. It was, it, it was desolate, it was empty, it was lifeless, it was void. And then look at the pattern. So first of all, you've got creation days relating to space. God forms by separating light from darkness and he fills this space with the sun, the moon and the stars. The numbers, obviously, are verse numbers. The next one. God creates days relating to the sky. He forms by separating the waters above from the waters below. And then he fills the sea and the sky. He creates fish and he creates birds. Isn't that interesting? God separates waters waters above waters below and he fills both with living creatures he fills with fish and with birds then you've got the creation days relating to the land God forms by gathering the waters into one place the oceans and creating plants and he fills by creating animals and finally humans in his image to complete the task. Then you've got the commission to mankind. He forms by giving a command to subdue and have dominion. In other words, bring order, bring structure, bring beauty to the world. And then there is the command to fill by being fruitful and multiply. In other words, to bring and, and sustain and create life in the image of God. Then you get into Genesis 2. There is the forming through work, through stewardship, through leadership. And there is filling the earth through the creation of family, through sex, through marriage, through relationship. The primary agent of forming in the Genesis narrative is the man. The primary agent of filling through reproduction is the woman. 
And when the curse comes, when Adam and Eve have rebelled against God, the curse on um, man, his primary role is that he is going to find it tough to cultivate the earth. The earth will be chaotic. And to woman, her primary role was about filling. Life is now going to be very painful, according to Genesis 3.16, the pain of childbirth. So that's the, the background to the, the backdrop, if you like, to what we're talking about. Key things to pick out of the Genesis narrative. I know we'll come, come on to that in a minute. Let's just talk about creation evolution. We've already established some of us are young earthers, some of us are old earthers, some of us are six literal days, some of us are theistic evolutionists. Um, I'm not too worried where you land. Some of you might be very worried that I even say that. So I've been on courses like this where somebody's got up and said, basically, unless you believe in a literal six-day creation and a younger theology, um, then you have a very low view of Scripture and you're not really a proper evangelical because your, your view of what the Word of God is actually saying is too low. Now, I totally, totally respect those who have a young earth um, theology and I totally respect those who have uh, a, um, uh, a view that is much more um, uh, grand design type approach. Um, so I think it's perfectly possible, I'll come back in a minute, I think it's perfectly possible to have a high view of scripture and not view Genesis 1 literally. But if you do view Genesis 1 literally, uh, I'm not saying you're a numpty either, because that's the, the opposite, isn't it? You, you hear people saying, well, how can anyone today accept Genesis 1 as a, uh, a literal text? It must be understood in a different way other than a literal interpretation. So I think wherever we land on the issue, we need to be mutually res respectful of one another um, I think um, where Tim Keller lands is Keller would be a sort of theistic evolutionist um, and you cannot say Keller is low in his view of scripture. Keller has a very, very, very high view of scripture. Um, so it's perfectly possible to not be a six-day uh, creationist and still be a strong evangelical with a high view of scripture. And your question was? Okay, so young earth is the earth is about 6,000 years of age. And even though it looks a lot older, it was created to look older. And old earth is, the earth's been here for millions and millions and millions of years. So if you're a young earther, you're likely to be a six-day creationer. If you're an old earther, you're likely to be a theistic evolutionist if you're a Christian. Um, 
So just some key issues. Um, first of all, uh, we need to have a high view of scripture. That must be our starting point. So don't simply ditch the creation story because it seems incompatible with modern science. So if you end up as a theistic evolutionist, your starting point should not be, well, modern science has disproved the Bible. That's far too simplistic a perspective. Secondly, the Bible does not seek to provide a scientific explanation of the origins of the universe. It provides a theological one. So, in the beginning, God. You got that? It's theology. It's not science. I'm not saying, therefore, it's unscientific, but the Moses stroke, the writer of Genesis, is wanting to address theological rather than scientific um, issues. This is obviously written in a pre-scientific age. It's not anti-science, it's pre-science. Um, thirdly, if you have a straightforward literal reading of Genesis, chapter 1, that will leave you with some, um, some problems. That's not to say they're insurmountable problems, but at least be aware you've got some problems. Don't bury your head in the sand. So, for example, you have verse 3, light, before verse 14, the creation of the sun and the stars. So, that's a problem. If you have a theistic evolutionary approach, that also presents problems because if you just swallow Darwinianism lock, stock and barrel, verse 27, what does it mean that human beings are made in the image of God? Because the, that verse for me is a very, very important theological statement about the difference between the rest of the animal kingdom and human beings. That it seems to me that theologically the writer is making a really, really important point there about the uniqueness of human beings as being made in the image of God. Um, what should we make of Tim Keller's approach? Well, you may not know what Tim Keller's approach is. Um, Keller says this. He says, Genesis 1 is almost a poem. He calls it exalted prose, but almost a poem that mirrors Genesis 2. So he would say Genesis 2 is historic narrative. Genesis 1 is a poem that reflects the narrative. Um, and he cites Judges 4 and Judges 5 as doing a similar thing, and everyone sees that they're doing a similar thing. Or Exodus 15 and 15 should be Exodus 14 and 15. Just correct the notes there. 14 is the historic narrative of God's people, Israel, leaving Egypt and being delivered or rescued, redeemed through the Red Sea. And then Genesis, um, Exodus 15 is a poem 
that declares that victory in poetic form. So, for me, the key issues here are not necessarily the mechanics or the science. It's the theology, about what it says about uh, who God is, about what the world is, and about what human beings are. They're the main messages that I would want to draw out of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. That actually God exists outside our time-space world, that there was uh, uh, this universe came into being not by accident but through uh, God's initiative and that human beings are made in the image of God. And we need to talk about what that looks like um, in uh, a moment. So just have a quick conversation with the person next to you. And you might be sitting next to a six-day creation young earther. You might be sitting next to a, a theistic evolutionist. So you need to work out where one another are on the spectrum. Uh, don't punch the person next to you if they disagree with you. But just... And, and also, if, you, if you're genuinely sitting on the fence, that's okay. That was a lot of conversation taking place. Who was sitting next to someone who had a very different view than their own? Yeah. Okay. Um, what about as we as we talked? Did, did you feel like I've just dodged the issues? Did you feel like actually it's helpful for someone to say it's okay to disagree on this? Um, talk to me. One thing that struck me is, is the fact that we can say we can disagree is actually a very hard one the position that's involved over the centuries, you know, persecutions and deaths and, you know, it's, it's a comfortable position to be in today compared to, you know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Obviously there are primary issues that actually it's not okay to disagree on. Somebody gets up and you know, says, actually, was, is Jesus the eternal son of God? Why we can disagree on that one. You think, hang on a minute here. No, this is, you know, Chris, Christians died for, for, for that reality. And then there are secondary issues. So for me, this is a secondary issue. Um, I'm not saying it's an unimportant issue. So for, for something like, I'll give you another secondary issue that is not unimportant, but it's okay to disagree on, baptism. So I'm totally committed to believers' baptism. But I do have to recommend that there are other people who have a very high view of the Bible, like Tim Keller, who pour water on babies and they think that's baptism. I don't think it's baptism. I think they've just got the baby wet. <laughs> but I can't diss them and say, oh, they, they're, they're, um, they've got a, a low view of the Bible. No, they've read the Bible and they've come to a different conclusion on a secondary issue. Yeah, but I, I, I wouldn't expect um, 
a postmodern secular world to even, you know, have. Oh yeah, but we we don't live in that sort of society, do we? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, but you wouldn't probably in a biology lesson look at Genesis one, would you? You you might in an RE lesson. Yeah. So I think I think the point that you're making is that actually a, a Christian worldview is pushed to the margins. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's that's the that's the cultural context that we live in. I'm, I, you know, it's like in in our in our church we've got um, as you come in a room similar to this that is a, a cafe, and uh, it's a place where. A lot of non-Christians come just to chill. It's you know better coffee than Costa, and we've got somebody in the church who's constantly putting six-day creation magazines in the rack, and I remove them, not because I I want a rubbish hair view, and not because I don't necessarily believe it myself, but I don't want when I engage with people who don't know Jesus this to be the thing that I must go to the stake over. It's a secondary issue. Yeah. For me, I just think there's bigger beefs to have about Christianity than to worry about creation and lots of other things. And I'd rather my colleagues who work at work who um, are not Christians to be not the first thing that comes to mind for them is not the central issue of grace. They don't get it, they don't know what it means. So I don't want them to be thinking about Christian views on creation and sexuality and how we live our lives and that they see that as judgment. And I want them to see prayer and yeah. positive things. Yeah, and, and I actually, exactly, and what I would do is if I get asked about, well, what about, you know, hasn't the Bible rejected, uh, sorry, isn't, it, hasn't science disproved the Bible? I would say, well, let's actually look at what Genesis tells us about us as human beings. Yeah. Because actually, if that's not the core issue of yeah. the Bible. And so, actually, when you say, you know, what's it mean to be made in the image of God? What, what does it, what are human beings like? And engage with someone who doesn't know Jesus on that level. And then say, well, let's look at what the problems in the world are. And you look at the sin problem. And so, I think actually, far from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 being really tricky sticking points in our dialogue with people who don't know Jesus, they could be key springboards to really engage people with, with who they are and what they think about the world today and the problems in, in, in the world. So I, I actually think that actually if, if we get our minds around what Genesis 1, 2 and 3 are really saying, it's a key evangelistic tool rather than something that we sort of push to one side and we're slightly embarrassed about because it, it seems to go against the grain in a postmodern world. One of the principles is it's not an accident. Yeah. And most people I talk to don't believe they're here by accident, yeah. even though their science tells them they are. Yeah. So they live in a contradiction 
which the gospel can speak into. Yeah. yeah. And, and of course, you know, if you go down um, the, um, the, the classic sort of um, Richard Dawkins militantly anti-God, it is ultra, ultra bleak about the world and most people don't want to believe that they want to believe there's some purpose there's some meaning there's there's some significance so what does it mean to be made in the image of God human beings represent God we're going to come back to the idea later on this morning about the idea of Eden being the first temple just hold that thought in your mind But in the ancient world, statues tended to demark land and ancient religions established statues of deities in their temples. So think, for example, um, in the conquest period, when the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the Temple of Dagon. Do you remember that story and the statue falls over? How do you know it's the Temple of Dagon? Because there's a dirty great statue of Dagon. The image denotes the temple. And what's being suggested here, the image of God in human form, man and woman, humankind being made in the image of God, they're placed in the garden. The garden is a picture of a temple. And so, in many ways, the Bible begins and ends with this temple motif. The garden is the temple in Genesis 1. In Revelation 21, we're told in the New Jerusalem, there is no need for a temple because God himself is the temple. He's the dwelling place. Secondly, human beings resemble God. This is a really interesting one. God is spirit, but when he appears in physical form, he looks like a man. And you can trace that thought in Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7, Joshua 5. So Ezekiel 1, Yeah, uh, verse 10, each had a human face in the front. Face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle. So this magnificent image that Ezekiel has of what God is like manifest in human form. Daniel 7 is the picture that Daniel has of one like the son of man being presented before the ancient of days so Jesus described as the son of man presented before the throne of the father and fascinating how again when you read the gospels how many times Jesus refers to himself as the son of man and people say oh that that proves my point Jesus doesn't actually think of himself as God actually it proves the very opposite that this son of man that Daniel sees is this magnificent king Israel's great king who's presented before the throne of God 
but one like the Son of Man. And Joshua 5 is the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts. And of course, the ultimate um, uh, manifestation of God in human form is the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us or tabernacled amongst us. So to be made in the image of God means to represent God, to resemble God, to rule for God. Go right back to Genesis 1 verse 26. Let us make human beings on our, in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock. And verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So representing, resembling, ruling, relating like God. There's a beauty in how Adam and Eve relate together. At last, says Adam, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And the relationships that we're intended to have as human beings made in the image of God are intended to reflect the Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Reproducing for God. Adam and Eve are told in verse 28 to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, to export the image of God across the globe. To take the glory of God that's in themselves and make it viral, if you like. Reasoning like God. Genesis 3. So there is an ability in human beings that you see in Eve before the fall, before she eats the forbidden fruit, that she has a capacity, unlike any of the animals, to engage in reason. And finally, to rest like God. Rest is unique to human beings. You don't get any of the animal kingdom. Let's have a day off. They just don't have that capacity. And again, the principle of Sabbath is not a legalistic requirement. It's a principle that's established well before the Ten Commandments off the basis of the pattern in creation. God creates the universe and on the seventh day he rests and you get to Exodus chapter 16 and the principle of Sabbath rest is established before the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Exodus 16, if you know the story, is about don't take up manna, don't collect manna on the Sabbath. Just get a daily supply each day, but the day before the Sabbath it's okay to collect for the Sabbath. So there's some of the things that it means to uh, be made in the image of God. 
Genesis 1 is also a demonstration that the God of Israel, Yahweh, Jehovah, is the one true God. Just five points to note, note there. First of all, God is sovereign. That means he's in control. When he speaks a word, things that are not come into existence. The phrase, and it was so, keeps repeating. Remember what we said about uh, God as a supernatural God. And one of the points that the writer of Genesis is trying to get across is that Yahweh, Israel's God, is not like these dumb idols that sit there and do nothing. When God speaks, when God acts, things happen. So there's a big contrast here that's being made between the God of Israel and these false gods. Notice, secondly, God creates land and sea. See, in other ancient civilizations, evil gods or demons controlled the sea. Not so with the God of Israel. God controlled it all. There's nothing outside of his control. Even when you get to the New Testament, um, you'll see that even deep in Israel's subconscious is a fear of the sea. So stilling of the storm, for example, the um, disciples are terrified in the boat and Jesus is making the point, I'm the God of Israel, there's nothing outside of my control. Or, or Jesus and Peter walking on the water. It's all mine, says Jesus. Jesus is making profound theological points here. They're not just conjuring tricks, those sorts of miracles. It goes right back to the creation narrative. Many religions in the Mediterranean at this time have the sun, the moon and the stars as gods. That's commonplace. Yahweh, we're told, created them all verse 14 let lights appear in the sky to separate the night day from night let them be signs to mark seasons days and years let lights in the sky shine down on the earth and that is what happened God made two great lights the larger one to govern the day and the smaller one to govern the night he also made the stars that's the most magnificent low-key sentence in the whole of Genesis 1, isn't it? He also made the stars. There are billions of stars. And it's just like a throwaway comment. Oh, yeah, he did that as well. It's amazing. But actually, it's almost a throwaway comment because it's not the central theme of what the writer's talking about. The central theme is God made you, God made me in his image fourth point because the sea was not controlled by benevolent forces sea creatures were fierce feared enemies but Yahweh created them on day five so just as the sea in, in the ancient world was to be feared 
Consequently, sea creatures were to be feared, the big monsters of the deep, you know, whales, etc. No, day five, God created them. And finally, a king would often be in the image of the gods in the Near East. But in the biblical picture, it's not one great person, but all of humanity that bears the image of Yahweh. I think that's a massive point. We, uh, yeah, we live in a culture that's superstar obsessed. And actually the biblical message, every single person on the planet, all eight billion, bears the image of God. That changes everything, changes how I relate to people. The dignity that I look to bring to, to people's lives. How I love people and care for people. Okay, um, we'll just do one more little section and throw it out for, for questions. Creation of humanity. Notice that work is good and precedes the fall. God said, let us make human beings in our image and they will reign over the fish of the sea, etc. And 2.15, God placed the man in the garden to tend and watch over it. Um, I, I don't know, who, who was the amen there? Why did you say amen? I feel like we've lost, I think there's a push towards work, uh, secular and work, spiritual is two separate things. God's designed for work, God is a working God, we're born in his image and yeah, I think that's that's a really helpful point, and that's that's why I put it in the in the notes that actually we do need to give dignity to labour, and whether that's intellectual labour or physical labour, and and often those of us who are university educated can be very quick to say, oh well, you know, work is good, by which we mean mental work, but actually f this is physical labour, there is a dignity in physical labour, um, and actually um, I think often pastors are the worst at this, um, and the church in, by which I mean that the church in the Middle Ages um, really um, developed a culture of the sacred and the profane and of the clergy and the laity. Uh, and it was Luther, actually, when he comes along in the Reformation, that actually writes a book about the dignity of work and looks to honour just humble physical tasks with um, you know, the, the point that the writer's making here. So um, work is good. Notice also marriage is created as a picture of Christ and the church. So you've got Genesis 2, um, 24, um, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Jesus then repeats that in Matthew 19. Paul picks it up in Ephesians uh, chapter 5. And when you read Ephesians 5, 
you can't work out often whether Paul is talking about marriage or whether he's talking about Jesus and the church. Because it's almost like for Paul, they're one and the same thing. And I think John Piper wrote a book a few years ago called This Momentary Marriage, in which he says the reason why marriage is so, so, so important is it is the defining symbol of the relationship between Jesus and the church. And that's why the whole debate that has looked to redefine what marriage is, is so dangerous. And why, you know, um, it is so unhelpful that politicians um, in the 21st century suddenly think they can redefine an institution that's not just a historic one, but actually is a God-given one. Um, that's the issue it doesn't mean to say we don't love the gay community we don't look to share the gospel with the gay community and all of that in heaps but we need to be crystal clear as to what marriage is Um, and Jesus actually you know my big defense of um, a traditional view of marriage is based on principally Matthew 19. It's not based on what Paul writes about uh, homosexual activity in Romans 1 or uh, 1 Corinthians 5 or anything like that. It would be on what Jesus says in Matthew 19, which is actually a direct quotation from Genesis 2. Let's pause and any questions on any of that so far? Yeah. Yeah. To explain that, I mean, we're body, soul, and spirit, aren't we? Which is like a dream. But how would you explain the image? Yeah, well, I think that the framework that I've given, given you is, is, is how I would define it. I, for me, to be made in the image of God would be we're meant to represent God. And in, in other words, God is in control. We as human beings are meant to be in control. Uh, God cares. Actually, I, I was preaching last Sunday uh, at uh, KCC, and I was preaching on stewardship, how we handle money. And um, actually, that is a massive issue the issue of stewardship. For the first three minutes of the preach, I just showed one of the the classic moments in the Blue Planet and said, actually, our culture is screaming for stewardship right now. That we desperately, as a culture, want to say, will will someone, will we collectively please take care of our planet? Because it doesn't, we don't own it. We're just temporary custodians. Now, the society and the culture says, actually, it belongs to our children. I would say no, as a Christian, I would say it belongs to God and I've been entrusted uh, to to care for it. So I think you you can use that framework, those seven things, representing God, resembling God, ruling on God's behalf, how we relate to one another, um, the whole um, reproducing, filling uh, the world with the reflected glory of God, an ability to reason 
and the whole principle of rest. That, for me, is what it means to be made in the image of God. Sorry, I haven't actually seen what you're saying. Yeah, no, that's fine. No, that's fine. Okay, let's keep going, but feel free to come back. Let's talk about um, the Garden of Eden as a temple, because I think this is really, really interesting. So just take the temple motif as a Genesis to Revelation overview. We've talked about Eden as a temple. Think about the tabernacle, which was built during um, the period of the Exodus on the 40-year journey through the wilderness. Um, It was physically a tent, and in the tent, in the Holy of Holies, is the Ark of the Covenant, and in the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant is covered by the, the mercy seat, the, uh, the gold top where the blood uh, is spilt, and in the Ark of the Covenant are the two stone tablets. Um, the, tam- the tabernacle is a picture, it is a dwelling place, it is a temple, it's a temporary temple, but it's a temple in which God dwells. When you get to the rule of uh, King David, David wants to build a permanent home for the ark. And God says no, and it goes to Solomon, David's son, to build the temple. But you look in uh, Exodus chapter uh, 40, and the glory of God comes to the tabernacle. And it fills the tabernacle just quote um, the cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle during the day and at night fire glowed inside the cloud so the whole family of Israel could see it so the glory of God fills this tent the glory of God was in the garden the glory of God's in the tent the glory of God is in the temple when the temple gets built says the priests couldn't enter it because the presence of God was so thick in the place. And then you get to Jesus as the ultimate temple. Jesus says in John 2, 19, I'll dis- you'll destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. In other words, he's prophesying his resurrection. Jesus says, this temple is pointing to me. John picks that out in John 1 when he says, um, you know, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. That Jesus is the very image, the very representation of the glory of God. John 1.14, full of grace and truth and we beheld his, his glory. So Jesus is the temple. And then the church is the temple because the church is made of people like you and me who are in Christ. So because Jesus is the temple, we become the temple. He's the chief cornerstone and we're living stones. You get that from Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2. And then ultimately the whole cosmos is the temple. Revelation 21, I referred to that earlier. So this is a massively important theme running right the way through 
the Bible from Genesis through to Revelation. But let's start with the garden. Adam acts like a priest. He guards the dwelling place of God. The cherubim guards God's presence. Do you remember in the um, Genesis 3 story when after the fall God sends them out of the garden and God stations mighty cherubim to the east of the garden and he places a flaming sword that flashes back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree of life parallels the lampstand in the tabernacle and the temple. Eden is the source of four rivers. You see that in Genesis chapter 2. Yeah, look at verse 10 onwards, naming of the rivers parallels the river that flows from the temple from the throne of God Ezekiel 47 Revelation 21 like the temple the entrance to the garden faces east if you look at Ezekiel 28 the garden is depicted as a temple and God's purpose for all of humanity is ultimately to fill creation with his presence So when you look at Genesis and you think about the story of the garden, think about it in terms of the presence of God and the glory of God and in terms of what that means for you and I. Let's just spend a couple of minutes talking about the origins of evil in the world. This comes back to the question you were asking about sin and what sin is. Because... As Christians, we can often be very one-dimensional in our view of sin. Sin is like doing naughty stuff, doing stuff we shouldn't be doing. Sin is much, much more than that. So I've given you some ideas here. Sin is about relational betrayal. So I've given you the illustration of a man who hurt his wife talking to her lover on the phone. One of the worst things I've ever experienced as a pastor was having to deal with a friend. I was in his small group and I was on staff as a pastor in the church and he picked up his wife's phone and found text to a guy she was having a full-blown affair with who happened to be another group leader in the church. Now, that's quite a shocking thing But you imagine, I was literally up with him till about three in the morning, he wanted to throw himself off beachy head. Sin there is first and foremost about relational betrayal, isn't it? Just imagine the grief and the heartache and the pain in that man as he finds his wife's mobile. Now translate that into our relationship with God. And think about how sin moves God's heart. And the the heartache. You read the book of Hosea about how God feels 
as a lover, as a husband towards a wife who's become a prostitute. Sin breaks the heart of God. So sin isn't just doing bad stuff. There is a gut-level emotional response in the heart of God when we mess up. Yeah. Um, uh, when uh, Tom Wright talks about sin, you'll often talk about, he, he says it starts with idolatry. So that actually, he said exactly the same view that often Christians have talked about the naughty things. And then actually, that's our, uh, our dialogue with the world is you people need to stop doing bad stuff. Uh, whereas he says actually, where this begins is what you worship. And so when you're talking relational betrayal, it's, uh, are we to, would you say it's uh, humans? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's you know, like somebody's got cancer and uh, you, you've got to go for the primary cause, haven't you? You've got to go for the, uh, the absolute root issue. I was visiting somebody in, in hospital this week, and I don't do many hospital visits, but he looks like Job covered to head to foot in the most disgusting sores I've ever seen. And he's, a, he's on staff with us. And, and you think, you know, somehow there's an infection got in that is distru- literally eating his body. And uh, you think, go after the root cause. Um, I think, yeah, Tom Wright's really good on that and Keller's really good on idols as well. But idolatry is a massive, massive issue. What, what do people think of the, the, the main idols in our culture? Yeah, money, ourselves, status, power, and sex. Yeah, I think you've probably got the big five there. Um, cosmic consequences. We're all like the children of Chernobyl. Some of you are too young to remember Chernobyl. When was it? 83? The most horrific nuclear disaster in um, modern day Ukraine, then part of the Soviet Union. And you've still got children today who are appallingly deformed, who were, their mothers were pregnant with them at the time. And, and, you know, the nuclear poison has got into their system, has affected who they are, the very physical fabric of who they are as, as people. That's what sin does, doesn't it? It, it pollutes everything. And uh, that's why Paul writes in Romans 8 about the whole creation is groaning. Sin permeates everything. Um, and it's a, that's a powerful um, image. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you, you wouldn't be able to... Um, so, for example, um, 
are we going to have things like, like um, autism in, in new creation? No, I don't think that we are. Is the fact that Andrew Wilson has two severely autistic kids, or as does Andy McCulloch actually, down to their personal sin? No. Jesus says in John 9, it was neither this man nor his parents who sinned um, that caused them, him to be blind, but that the works of God might be made manifest. So I think things, all sorts of things in our world, earthquakes, sickness, disease, death, it's all part of living in a broken, polluted world. Um, God wants willing agreement, not simply blind obedience. Like the difference between what we expect of a two-year-old child and an eight-year-old child. So, uh, you know, this is an interesting angle on sin, that when you've got um, some, uh, you know, a child who's about to go off to university, let's say, you look to reason with them. You don't simply give them a tap and say, no, don't put your hand in the fire. And that not that what God is doing in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3? You may eat of any tree in the garden, but not that tree. Um, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. I think that's a classic quote uh, that's used on the Alpha course. It's originally Solzhenitsyn, the um, Russian philosopher. In other words, sometimes because we, we as Christians believe in total depravity, in other words, that we as human beings are capable, are incapable of doing good by our own initiative. We, well, what I mean by doing good, the ultimate good, we cannot please God by our own initiative because of our fallen nature. But that is not to say that human beings cannot, in their sinful condition, do enormous good. We can't do the ultimate good, but we can do good. So it's actually like quite a caricature of, I think, what the Bible teaches to just say, oh, well, because of sin, then actually, you know, none of us can, can do anything that is remotely worthy of praise and recognition. Human beings can do amazing acts of kindness and generosity. I think about my, my brother is a much more kind and generous person than I am. He, um, my brother actually invented, um, if you know the, you've got small kids, invented the program Something Special, you know, the Mr. Tumble and all that. He's got an incredible heart for kids with special needs. He's much kinder than I am. Now, and yet I'm a Christian. He's not a Christian. But even in his fallen state, he has a capacity to love and to be generous and to be creative. Um, yes, um, Genesis 2.17 is not arbitrary. 
What do you normally want to do when you see a sign saying, please don't walk on the grass? You want to put your foot on it, don't you? It's annoying when you go to posh gardens, I know, Kew Gardens or some Oxford or Cambridge College and you get into the quadrangle and there's the sign. And immediately you want to break the command. And the point that's being made here is God is not saying don't walk on the grass. He's saying don't feed the bears. You get signs like that if you go to Yosemite National Park in in America. Why? Because if you feed the bears, they will kill you. That's what sin does. You feed sin, it'll kill you. So God's not saying don't walk on the grass. He's saying don't feed the bears. Um, I think the Genesis 3 narrative tells us that human beings prefer independence to happiness which actually results in a whole lot of heartache think about it that Adam and Eve chose independence from God as a preference to supreme bliss they could have had it all but they chose independence and then Finally, (laughs) look at how many times nakedness is mentioned in the Genesis narrative. It's mentioned four times, once in chapter 2, three times in chapter 3. And think about what nakedness says about vulnerability, insecurity, and shame that actually they the point is this that before sin entered the world they were naked and unashamed but sin brings shame fear vulnerability insecurity and again you look at our culture today shame is massive fear and vulnerability insecurity massive Why is it that in all our modern sophistication, mental health issues are going skywards in our culture? I think it's to do with the impact of this sort of thing in people's hearts and minds. Can I just ask a question? Yeah. Coming back to six, you said that human beings chose To that argument but actually um, we're, we're not really it's arguing slightly from silence we're not really told much of what bliss was like in the Garden of Eden what we do know is that God came to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden 
because um, we're told that in chapter 3 after the fall. So you assume it, it, it was normal business. You think, how, how cool is that for, for God to choose to take a stroll with you each evening? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but actually think about the, the joy in Adam and Eve that that must have brought. That, that, that there is a supreme happiness there. Now, they're not realising quite what they're going to lose. No, they might have thought they could get even happier. Yeah. But again, I, I, I think rather than use it to argue abstractly in terms of Adam and Eve, I think it's much more interesting to think about it in our context, in terms of what is going to bring supreme happiness to us. It's not independence. We think it is. You think that that's prodigal son, just off I go. And you see it with teenagers, you know, go off to university, live independently. It doesn't bring happiness. Anything, anything but, actually. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. Yeah. 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 Okay, just last five minutes, just look at the consequences of sin there. Notice first, Satan is judged and his ultimate fate is sealed. So the consequences of, of sin are utterly devastating. But the starting point is, in the end, sin, death, and Satan are defeated. So Genesis 3.15. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The ultimate defeat of Satan. And Romans 16, verse 20. The God... God will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's the promise that Paul gives, echoing that promise there. So ultimate defeat of of sin. But meanwhile, for, for the woman, pain, subjugation. I don't think it was ever God's intention. In fact, I'm sure it wasn't God's intention that women should live as second class subjugated citizens the, the, if you look at human history that's been normative so women being treated on equal terms with men is a 20th century phenomenon but only in certain parts of the world in the 20th century it was always God's plan that Adam and Eve man and woman were created in his image to equally reflect uh, his glory. So women, pain and subjugation. Uh, men, uh, work becoming difficult and obviously mortality. Uh, women, you're uh, mortal too, although it's not specifically uh, mentioned there. Death, notice chapter 4 and verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. Notice the curse on Cain, 
exile, separation, wandering and being killed. Even with Cain, however, the God of Israel shows grace. Notice hope in the seed through Seth. So the the promise of the ultimate victory of the woman's seed in Genesis 3 verse 15 is fulfilled in Genesis 4 25. Adam had sexual relations with his wife and gave birth to another son. She named him Seth for she said God has granted me another son in place of Abel whom Cain killed. So Seth becomes the seed bearer. And notice also Genesis 4:26 when Seth grew up he had a son and named him Enosh. At that time people first began to worship the Lord by name. That even in the bleakness of Genesis chapter 3 with this um, event that just destroys so much of what God has done and created and God's perfect plan out of this devastation there is hope there is the promise of the seed the promise of the destruction of Satan and men and women first begin to worship the Lord by name I need to stop there just answer any questions that people have got nervous of an over-realised eschatology that says that the the promises that are ultimately fulfilled in new heaven, new earth um, are like, well they're, they're for now, they're not for now we get foretastes of the kingdom now, the kingdom's come but it's not yet fully come So, yeah, I I think both pastorally and theologically, that sort of thing, we can smile and laugh, but actually it becomes potentially quite dangerous. I've had friends who've been told, you know, you just need to receive your healing uh, from breast cancer uh, and you don't need treatment, just hold on to what God said and six months later they're dead. That was an over-realised eschatology. And you see it in some... Um, yeah, I'm not, believe me, I love a lot of what um, is produced in terms of Bethel worship. But some of the Bethel songs have an over-realised eschatology. So, for example, um, give you an example, No Longer a Slave to Fear, I'm a Child of God. Do you know that song? Yeah, it's a beautiful song, packed full of biblical truth. 
although the first line, you unravel me with the melody, is pretty fluffy. Um, <laughs> particularly one of our worship leaders is called Melody, so that really does your head in. Um, but, um, it, you know, you get to the, the verse where it talks about um, you... Um, uh, um, you know, basically the image, the Exodus 15 um, parting of the Red Seas and, and, and our redemption and then it has this quote from Romans 8 about the glorious freedom of the children of God and says oh it's all for now and you think actually you're singing a biblical truth that's about a future promise but you're applying it in the here and now and I don't think you should I think it's really important when we sing. So I'm not, I'm, I've got a, fr- a problem with a few of, lo- of the lines from that song. I'm not anti, you know, all Bethel worship. Much of Bethel worship is amazing. But the point I make is, A, don't have an over-realised eschatology. The kingdom is not yet fully come. And B, a subsidiary point, when whatever you sing in worship... Think very carefully, even if it's quoting Bible verses, because some Bible verses aren't for now, they're for future. say that it's right at the heart of the fall because actually human beings are saying uh, I I choose myself rather than God I choose my will and my view of of the world rather than God's perspective so in perfection there were the seeds of potential disobedience I think true freedom always allows um, uh, people to make poor choices so my wife has total freedom I don't look at what she spends from our joint bank account I don't track her I don't have a tracking device on her phone because actually it's a loving relationship so there's total trust and I think you know in the beauty of Eden there is, there is love and trust and therefore the opportunity for rebellion. So the difference between perfection in Eden, future perfection, if there were seeds of disobedience there and seeds of disobedience being eliminated in future perfection, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think one of the great, one of the great mysteries of salvation is like when... When angels rebelled, they were cast out of heaven. And now I think angels look on and say, really? When God steps in and personally intervenes to rescue and redeem human beings who look much less powerful and much less important, therefore, than angels. Um, But actually in new creation, um, what Adam lost... Jesus restores and can never be lost.